remember when we used to call a long home run a Ballantine blast? Cold brewed Ballantine. We've got a lot of greatness going for us. Good morning and welcome to episode 276 of Effectively Wild, the daily podcast from BaseballPerspectus.com. I'm Sam Miller with Ben Lindbergh. Ben, mm. I found I found out your Twitter name now, Ben. It's, it's, <laughs> it's a wrap. It's a wrap. <laughs> <laughs> took, you, took you a few years. Um, All right. <laughs> so we, we should address a couple things, uh, lingering things from the email show. You know what I love about the email show is that it leads to the email follow-up show yes. next day. Lots of uh, lots of Facebook discussion also these days. <laughs> Not that you would know, uh, but <laughs> that's that's between you and him. Uh-huh. <laughs> Call back. Uh-huh. Uh, all right. Uh, so the first thing is we talked yesterday about whether um, measuring players' heart rates would be useful, and um, Dan Brooks um, emailed me a link that I, I just had a chance to glance at, but. Um, it's about researchers who are kind of able to determine changes in this sort of thing uh, by video, by looking at um, variations in successive frames of video that are imperceptible to the naked eye. That's a quote. I didn't use those words myself. So, for instance, the software makes it possible to actually see someone's pulse as the skin reddens and pales with the flow of blood, or it can exaggerate tiny motions making visible the vibrations of individual guitar strings or the breathing of a swaddled infant in a neonative intensive care unit, which doesn't seem that helpful in baseball. But uh, I think this goes to my point, which is that um, there will always be a way to find the data and that more and more teams are going to be uh, wanting all the data before mm-hmm. they even know what they're going to do with it. Yeah. Uh, so that's an interesting thing, and I am very grateful to Dan, and I hope that this will make you uh, admit you were wrong. <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, sure. All right. Now, do you want to do the thing about the catcher box? Uh, I have it. Yeah, you have it. Yeah, you do it. John, uh, John sent us a note to let us know that um, in Burlington a few years ago, there was a walk-off catcher's balk, which is the play that we were talking about yesterday, where uh, the catcher leaves the catcher's box too early uh, in a squeeze play or an attempted steal or an intentional walk. Actually, any of those. Uh, if he leaves the catcher's box too soon, it is a balk. It is a catcher's balk. We have uh, never really seen it called. I've never seen it called. Uh, but uh, John points out that this happened in a minor league game as a uh, to walk off the game, uh, which is a spectacular way to end the the game. He cites um, Randy Wehofer, who is the broadcaster and director of media relations for the Iowa Cubs, uh, who says, "Yeah." Nobody had any idea what was happening at the time, but I'll never forget it. And this goes back to what we were talking about, how baseball is the only game where umpires, it seems to me, where umpires make uh, game-changing calls and don't bother to explain it to anybody. So yeah, you this, figure... this supports Zachary Levine's article from last week at BP where he talked about how we should give umpires a microphone so that they can be patched into the PA system at a park, and when something confusing like this happens that people at home and people in the park wouldn't wouldn't know what just happened, they could they could be patched in and, and announce what happened. I like that idea. Exactly. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that everybody at this game walked home <laughs> like WTF, no idea yeah. what, what had happened. Yeah. It would have been like just, they would have probably come up with all sorts of incredible theories for what happened. Mm-hmm. 
um, and I guess I don't know. Should, I guess I feel like we should talk about Miley Cyrus because <laughs> really everybody is. Yeah. But I don't. <laughs> yeah. I guess maybe not. Yeah. Maybe not. Okay. Yeah. Do you have anything else? Uh, I was. I just wanted to mention since we're bringing up the Brandon Phillips C Trent altercation. Um, I was I was in a clubhouse. I was at City Field earlier tonight, and I realized how how little I can perceive who's a good clubhouse guy from my my trips to the clubhouse, um, which are not as as regular as a beat writer's, obviously. But I was in the in the Phillies visiting clubhouse, and I think if if I had known nothing about the players there and had had to surmise who was a good clubhouse guy based on just what I saw in the hour and a half or so that I was in there, I would, I would have, I would have concluded that Michael Young was like the most unpopular player on the team. I think. I don't think a single person spoke to Michael Young the entire time I was there. He was just sitting, sitting at his locker, not really saying anything or doing anything. And the only person to talk to him in that entire hour and a half was a reporter who came over to ask him some questions about clubhouse chemistry. Which I thought was amusing, but and meanwhile there was like you know this group of of players chatting and watching highlights on each other's phones and like sitting in a kind of round table and just making fun of each other and looking like they were having a really good time and people coming over to to ask what they were watching and meanwhile Michael Young was not saying a word. So <laughs> I saw uh, yeah I was in the Indians clubhouse not long ago and uh, to I wanted to talk to Giambi and. Giambi was wearing headphones, and which I consider to be a uh, generally not a great clubhouse thing to do. Uh-huh. Ge- I mean, you know, everybody wears club uh, headphones at some point. But I watched Giambi for like 15 minutes, and he was just sitting at his locker with headphones. And I thought, that guy's all hype. Come on. <laughs> and then, yeah. and then I found out like a minute later, the headphones weren't plugged into anything. <laughs> and in fact, it's just he for was, reporters. He was. I mean, he ha- he had them in there, but yeah, no, they weren't on. And, uh, and then I had a chance to talk to Giambi and I've been, I've had a like mega crush on him ever since (laughs) Giambi really in five minutes of talking to you will completely win you over. He is, I'm, I feel confident saying the greatest man who's ever lived. (laughs) Wow. So yeah, you can't just watch Michael Young, Ben, you Uh have to talk to Michael Young. Yeah, that was my mistake. Probably. Mm -hmm. Okay. What's your topic? Uh, Vladimir Ballantin. And home run is Vla- Japan. Really, it is. It is Ballantine. According to the the Baseball Reference pronunciation guide, it is Ballantine. That's not what I was going to ask you. Didn't you? Oh. Did you call him Vladimir? <laughs> yes, it's also that. So the, it's Vladimir, really? <laughs> yeah, it's not. Well, Vladimir. <laughs> what did you think it was? Vladimir. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I thought that's what I thought it was. Nope. <laughs> it's Vladimir. Yes. He's not from Eastern Europe. <laughs> no, he's not. He's from Vladimir. He's from Curacao. Huh. Uh, and I want to talk about um, the A's. So okay. uh, yours is way more interesting. So start with yours. We'll see. Um, okay. So Ballantine is uh, completely crushing the the Japanese Central League. He has 51 home runs. Uh, the, the all-time single-season record is 55. And he's got 32 games left, I think. So... Uh, he would seem to be a, a very good bet to to break that, assuming that he gets pitched down the stretch with some. No, he would be a very good bet regardless. Uh, yeah, I guess so. Under I, no I... circumstances is he a very is he not a very good bet to break that. 
four four homers in 32 games. Yeah, right. I mean, it was it's been reported that like with the previous American players who were challenging uh, that yeah. record, they just weren't pitched to. Like Tuffy Rhodes and Alex Cabrera share that record uh, at 55 with Sadaharu O. Oh. And I don't know, I don't know how many games they went without a home run when they were sitting on that number, but. Um, but it looks like uh, he's he's going to break that or he has a, a good chance to break that. And there's really no one. My initial thought was that I think we've mentioned that offense is up in Japan this year because the ball changed. Um, and so my initial thought was that this was just inflated by the new ball. But really, no one is anywhere close to him. Uh, I think the, and the, the Japanese stats site is really not very easy to use but it it looks to me like he's leading the rest of the league by almost 20 home runs um he's hitting 339 he has a 461 obp and he's slugging 827 um and no one is really close to those kinds of numbers and when i looked a little deeper it's not really that offense is up this year it's up relative to the last two years when they were using kind of a dead ball but relative to to prior years, it's not at all out of line with with scoring there. It's uh, the league ERA is three point eight two this year. Last year it was basically a run lower, two point eight six, and in two thousand eleven three point oh six. But before that, when the ball was the regular ball, it was basically the same four point one three, three point five five, three point seven four, three point eight four. So roughly what it is now. So it's not like this is just purely inflated by that. Um, he has 14 doubles. Yeah, that's interesting. I guess, <laughs> I mean, yeah, every every extra base hit has left the ballpark pretty much. Um, and no triples. Yeah, no triples. So uh, so someone was talking to me about this at the Sabre seminar um, and was and was pointing out that if if the Japanese league, which we generally regard to be triple a level or somewhere between triple a and the majors um if he's destroying that level of of pitching and that that level of competition then that would suggest on the surface at least that he could hold his own in the majors if he were to to come back and uh he played in the majors from age 22 to age 24 was never played a full season but uh struggled for for the Mariners and the Reds, uh, his his career line in 559 plate appearances is 221, 281, 374. Um, the last we saw of him on this continent was 2010 when he spent almost a full year at AAA at age 25 and hit 25 homers and slugged 536 and was, was pretty good, uh, but nothing like what he's doing now. So I was wondering, um, I guess what this what this says to people in the industry when they see Ballantine going crazy over there now at age 29, and whether there's any increased interest in him. And uh, he was signed to a three-year contract over the winter. Um, he plays for the Occult Swallows. Uh, he has a three-year deal for 7.5 million, which. You can understand why he went over there to play. He's been there since uh, 2011, um, and that's obviously way more money than than he was making here, than he would have been making here. But uh, and probably will stay there because he's in a three-year contract. But I wondered whether 
whether he would hit well if he came back, uh, how persuasive it is to to MLB teams that that he could hit for them if if he had the opportunity. Um, so I asked a pro scouting director about this, uh, and I guess I'll just read his response. Uh, he said, "This is a good question, and I'm not sure that I have a great answer." The general rule of thinking is that the level of play in the NPB lies somewhere between AAA and the major leagues, though much closer to AAA. You're going to be running up against fewer pitchers with mid-90s fastballs and more pitchers who rely heavily on trick pitching and changing speeds with breaking balls. That isn't to take away from what Ballantin has done, but only to highlight that if he were to return to the States, the walk rate would likely drop precipitously while the K rate would rise. But by the same token, I was convinced that there was no way that Colby Lewis could perform at the same level that he was when he was in the NPB, and he certainly proved me wrong. So I wouldn't rule out Ballantine being able to provide average value for a major league team. But I think there would have to be a lot of teams that see Ballantine as a viable power bat off the bench, and maybe one or two that would be willing, mistakenly, in my humble opinion, to roll the dice on him as an everyday player. Uh, so that is the interesting, I think, answer to the question that that I was wondering. And that's yeah, that that's really interesting. That's that seems to be far less credit than I would have expected uh, to be given to him. I think I, I was actually I I in a way, I think I was probably expecting. Oh, you said that was less credit. I I think that was maybe more credit. I was kind of expecting. It to be totally written off as just like quadruple A player punishing bad pitching or something, um, but th- yeah, but it's I mean it's the thing is it th- this is not uh, I mean for one thing if he were in triple A and he were doing this I mean he is so far beyond what anybody is doing in triple A right now I'm looking at yeah. the PCL batting leaders right now. Mm-hmm. And PCL is not just AAA, but it's a wildly inflated offensive environment. Mm-hmm. And um, Ballantine's got almost 200 points of OPS on anybody in the PCL. Mm-hmm. He's got 150 points of slugging on anybody in the PCL. He's got 26 home runs yeah. on anybody in the PCL. So I feel like if he were doing this in the PCL, it would be, you know, I mean, it wouldn't guarantee him anything, but certainly. It would, I mean, almost, I will go so far as to say that if he were doing this in the PCL, any team that he was doing it for would have called him up by now. So I don't think that pro scouting director would think it was, it was folly to call him up and give him a shot. Mm -hmm. And, um, he's not doing it in the PCL. He's doing it in a, in an, in a, um, in a league that this guy said, the scouting director says is. Some you know somewhere not necessarily far above but somewhere above the PCL mm-hmm. and not as inflated an offensive environment so a better better competition and not quite the you know altitude effects mm-hmm. so I'm surprised I mean when I see this I don't necessarily think Valentin is um, I wouldn't go so far as to say this is quite Edwin Encarnacion mm-hmm. uh, you know bl- blowing up in his late 20s mm-hmm. uh but something like that maybe i mean i would consider it reasonable to think that if he were in the majors this year exactly the same way that he is now that he might be uh you know a, yeah, certainly I, I would i would consider 30 plus home runs and you know something like a 900 ops to be plausible mm-hmm. 
that's yeah I don't, I don't know it's i guess i mean the the stats certainly would would suggest that if that's the level of competition and he's destroying it as he is um, i mean destroy he's got an 822 <laughs> slug yes um i i don't i mean but you look at the people who who share that record with o and it's that's like true. i mean tuffy Rhodes. um Tuffy Rhodes played parts of six seasons in the majors and hit 224, 310, 349, which, which is, I guess, roughly what what Ballantine hit, something like that. Um, and I mean, he played uh, he played he got over 2,000 plate appearances in AAA. Um, he hit 288, 368, 463 there. So, uh, so I don't. I mean, looking at at those players who've had some of the all-time best NPB seasons, and Alex Cabrera just got like a cup of coffee in one one season in the majors as a 28-year-old, and uh, I, I mean, I guess the fact that that those players weren't very good and didn't have much success over here, I guess, makes it easier to write off what he's what he's doing. Yeah, but I mean, you're uh, those are those are those are two examples, mm-hmm. and. I mean, the whole point of translations, yes. which, you know, are inexact, but it's that they have a much larger pool. I mean, Noriyoki was supposed to be awful mm-hmm. when he came over here, and he turned out to be really good. I mean, Aoki had had good seasons in Japan, but, he, you know, he was coming off a bad one. But, you know, he'd had good ones. So, you know, maybe it's unfair to include him as the, the counterexample. But, I mean, guys do come over and play really well. Yeah, and more pit, more pitchers than hitters. And American sure. American guys go over there and and don't play well. Uh, there's uh, on on Ballantine's team. Lastings Millage is a teammate of his, and his hitting two fifty one, three twenty nine, four thirty six, with sixteen homers and over four hundred over four hundred and twenty plate appearances. So he's he's not having any sort of special season. Um, yeah. So, so imagine that Raul Abanez, if we're just getting to, you know, pick one example and make a case out of it, imagine that Raul Abanez at 29 had gone over to Japan and played, you know, what his major league stats after 29 would translate to in Japan. You'd go, oh, Abanez, he was a minor league washout. I mean, you know, you would say he was nothing accomplished and it shows how easy it is to, you know, to, 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 to crush Japan. Mm-hmm. But, you know, Banyas became a good player. Maybe Tuffy Rhodes became a good player for all we know. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I don't know. It's interesting. And, uh, ba- you know, Ballantine's, he's, you know, he's, he's not an old guy. Nope. I don't know that we had the, I don't know that this, the book was closed on his career. Yeah. Uh, right. He, he wasn't, I mean, he was kind of a flop in his initial tries, but he was fairly young and, yeah, it'll be interesting to see if he ever gets a shot again. I mean, he's making two point five million, and he's signed for the next two seasons, uh, two point five each of those seasons. So he'd have to be—I mean, he'd have to get a pretty sweet offer to want to come back. Even if he could get out of that contract, he'd—he'd he'd probably have to be offered an everyday job, I guess, to want to come well, back to the majors during those years. Let me ask you this. Uh, imagine that he, if he had been in the United States this year, imagine that he would have been, you know, Edwin Encarnacion. He would have been a breakout star. But, you know, for just a couple years, and then, you know, his career would have gone, and he would have been, you know, largely forgotten, like, you know, Richard Hidalgo or something, just a guy who had a couple of big years. Or he can be in Japan and be the all-time home run record, 
and, you know, have this incredible year where he just was the kid who only hit home runs. Mm -hmm. What do you think is better? What do you think he would be, what would be more fun? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I, <laughs> I, I guess I'd, I'd kind of like the, I, I don't know. I, I, I guess players pretty much everywhere regard the majors as kind of the, you know, the, the highest level and, Japanese players want to come over here and prove themselves, or a lot of them do. Um, so I don't know. Maybe in, in like a, a personal pride sense, you would want to do it at at this level, even if you're not if you're not quite at the same level. I, you know, I I guess I guess I I would rather be Encarnacion uh, than than hold that record, assuming that I'm making pretty good money in the U.S. too. Uh, all right, so here's the question now. Here's our here's our daily bet, I guess. Maybe daily bet should be a, a feature on this. Here's That's, our daily bet. Sounds a lot like daily prediction. We don't like uh, this. How many home runs in the major leagues <laughs> does he hit before uh, he dies? <laughs> um, like going forward, not, yeah. we're not counting any that he's already got banked. Right. Um, gosh. Uh, <laughs> okay, I'll... I'll say 17. Yeah, I mean, zero's got to be the same. Zero should probably be the, the safest answer if yeah. you, you want to get on the nose, mm -hmm. but not necessarily closest. I will say that he hits, uh, I'll say he hits 95 home runs as a major league. <laughs> wow. You're, uh, you're really buying this. You're I'm not, a big believer. I'm not buying, Valentine. I mean, I'm buying, I am buying some part of it. I'm buying that, you know, he's a guy who has a, he has a plus-plus tool, mm -hmm. and that this will get him a shot in the majors and that given a shot in the majors, he probably would have done better than he did. Uh, you know, if he'd stuck around and, uh, you know, 90 home runs, I don't know, maybe it's a little high, but over the course of, you know, six years or whatever, that's not much. Mm -hmm. So I, uh, I'm, I'm, I'm on it. I'm, I'm with him. He was, apparently he was never a, a top 100 prospect guy. I would have guessed that he was, mm -hmm. um, Okay. Well, I would have never guessed it was pronounced Vladimir. <laughs> All right. Well, we've we both learned something today. Uh, you can right. talk about the A's. I do. Um, the A's. You know, last year the A's, of course, were like this incredible, incredible second half team. And if you you probably have an idea in your head that the A's for Billy Bean's entire tenure have been a great second half team. Mm -hmm. um, and they had a run. They had a run for a few years where it was like unbelievable how good they always were in the second half. Yeah. Um, and that wasn't nothing. I mean, there was a narrative that went along with that. And Billy Bean, I, I think, said, uh, or at least it was attributed to him, that you divide the season into threes, right? Into thirds. The first, you evaluate, you assess, you see what you have. The second, third, you you repair it or you get it in order. And the third, you ride that to victory, to championships, right? Mm -hmm. And this year, uh, of course, the, the final third is not nearly complete, and 24 games doesn't tell us much, but they're 12-12 and 12 since the trading deadline. They uh, had lost a couple games before the trading deadline uh, before that, and they've kind of let this six-game lead turn into a deficit. And I just am curious whether you think that the idea that um, – that there was any sort of method uh, to having this great second half was ever real, or whether the 
uh, aphorism was uh, kind of uh, just uh, describing something that had kind of flukishly happened. Did Billy Bean ever have this figured out? This year they didn't really, you, you wouldn't look at their middle third as being very active. They, they traded for Kayas, but that was their, their one move uh, on, the, on the trading block. They brought Sonny Gray up, and uh, I guess Dan Straley came up for good, and I guess a couple guys got sort of settled in positions maybe a little bit. Mm-hmm. But basically, they are more or less the, the team that opened the season. Mm-hmm. And so uh, I guess you would say either one of three things happened. Either they changed their strategy, something in baseball caused them to change their strategy, or this year the strategy was affected by circumstances, or there was never a strategy. That that was always kind of just um, something pithy uh, to describe something that needed a narrative. Mm. What, and I'm just curious, what is, what is your thought about how the A's have handled this, uh, uh, this pennant race? I'd like to know, I, I'd like to know what the the A's splits, either first half or second half, or those thirds are for his entire tenure there. Uh, well, there was a there was definitely a run where you would. There hear was, the yeah, a definitely, lot. yeah, absolutely. Um, but this this is his sixteenth season as GM. So, if we looked at that entire span to see whether this is actually true, that would be interesting. Um, I I don't know. I I I mean, I think that three year stretch or however long it was was that that didn't reflect any sort of actual tendency to just go crazy in that last third or second half or whatever it was um i could i could buy that there are certain gms who are good at retooling as the season goes on you know maybe there are certain gms who kind of uh their greatest strength comes in the off season and others who are stronger mid-season um and so the first group would just kind of put their team together over the winter and not really tinker too much or not tinker too well during this during the season and then the the second kind would be great at at identifying holes and pulling off trades to shore up weaknesses in the middle of the season and it seems like something that maybe is one of Billy Bean's skills um so I could I could buy it being real not not to the extent that it was for those few seasons where it was just like flip a switch and suddenly they start winning every game. Um, that seems like just kind of a, a random clustering thing that happened and, and formed a narrative. Um, but I could, I could see some, I mean, if you looked at, I, I wonder if you looked at all playoff teams, would you see a trend towards being better in the second half or, or final third or whatever, just because those teams tend to be buyers and buyers. Well, I mean, if you look at playoff teams, playoff yeah, teams, right? Playoff um, teams, you you know had you know success. I mean, that's a that's a survivor bias, yeah, right? Yeah, definitely. Um, but I mean, if you're asking whether competitive teams, like teams that are in the hunt at the end of July, mm-hmm. have better final thirds, yeah, uh, because they invest more, yeah, right? You, you'd you'd probably expect to see some element of that, yeah, but I, something small. Um, yeah, I mean, it doesn't necessarily, I don't know, it, it, maybe it doesn't sound like a groundbreaking strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I mean, for all these years, they, I mean, it, for at least for this particular run and then, you know, recreated last year, it was such a, such a difference that it just, it felt like you were seeing something, but maybe it that's did. the, maybe that's the lesson that Billy Bean has taught us is that <laughs> when you, 
when you think you see something, you, you best be skeptical. <laughs> yeah, I'm skeptical. I think there could be something to it, but not not nearly to the the level that it was perceived for a while there. So there's this, uh, uh, Tom Verducci wrote a piece in August of 2011. Uh, the headline is Games Shifting Strategies Leave Bean, Sage of Moneyball Behind, mm. uh, which is just tremendous timing. Uh-huh. <laughs> You'd love to be the writer who writes that article <laughs> yeah. in, in August of 2011. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, it's an interesting piece. And um, so he talks to Bean about how uh, the environment has changed because teams value young players uh, much more, uh, not just as uh, trade chips, but as assets that they use. And so then uh, I'm going to pick it up. July for Bean was like sitting at a casino table with no whales. To complicate matters, he found old school gunslingers such as Kevin Towers replaced by young, well-educated number crunchers who did their baseball undergrad work as disciples of Billy Bean. Bean and Towers both play professionally and bring a certain competitiveness to trade talks. They operate as ballplayers do without a fear of failure. This year, Bean found too many phone calls that came his way that sounded like this. Quote, I have interest in one of your players, and this is what I'm going to give you for him. End quote. (laughs) Bean said, that's not deal-making. It's name your own price. So... Um, yeah, maybe there's something to the idea that the environment has changed around him as well. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we did talk about this trade deadline and how quiet it was and how then, you know, my theory is that, um, I forget what my theory was, but I had theories about it. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, one theory was that we would see a lot of August trades. Um, and we haven't. Yeah, not, not so much. It's been quiet. It's been a quiet August. It has. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Uh, it's name your own price, by the way. The the last thing I said, that was not a bean quote. That was Vertucci. Yeah. I, I didn't make it clear. I don't want to <laughs> misattribute that. Uh-huh. All right. Uh, that was a fun show, Ben. Yeah, it was. We'll be back tomorrow with the last show of the week. And uh, don't forget to email us, podcast at baseballperspectus.com.